Funding for this program has been provided by this station and other public television stations and by grants from Exxon Corporation, Allied Chemical Corporation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. You tell that goddamn governor he's going to police this goddamn gasoline situation. I will not take the blame for this thing. I will not take the crap and the harassment from these customers. Now let him police it or stop selling gas. Anger and bewilderment are growing as more and more Americans cope with gasoline lines and empty pumps. I've been here since 4.30 this morning. It's ridiculous waiting online here. I couldn't get gas uh, Tuesday. The block was about, uh, the line was about eight blocks long. It was ridiculous. It was unbelievable waiting online. I can't take it anymore. I've been carpooling. It's my turn to get gas. And, uh, thank God I'm able to get gas today. I don't care how much it costs. I just got to get gas. I got to get to work. People are very desperate. They depend an awful lot upon their cars. And uh, it seems to be no limit to how far they'll go to keep driving that car. I thought my husband would be able to get gas. He came here at 20 after 5. And uh, he called me at 6 that I should come out and take over because he's got to go to work. And that's what I did. And I'm here where the car is here since uh, 20 after 5. I just can't believe Where's your husband? He's in the synagogue praying for me. I'm here since 5 in the morning. I spend every day three hours on the line. I am always nervous about gas. I can't concentrate on my work. I always have to look at my uh, gas gauge and find out where I can get gas. I went out this morning. We had a lot of work on the radio. People that called for cabs. I couldn't answer the calls. I have, my tank is uh, almost empty. Financially, it absolutely got to a point where it that was a clip from PBS NewsHour back in 1979 during what was known as the worst oil crisis in modern history. It was Queens, New York, and people were waiting hours to get gasoline. And trust me, you never want to make a New Yorker wait for anything. On the other side of the world was the Iranian Revolution, where Iranians were fighting to replace their more U.S.-friendly leader, Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. A few years before the revolution, oil-producing countries such as Iran weren't too happy with the United States because we were supporting countries like Israel um, in its war against Egypt. We're not going to get into all of that. What's important to note is how these oil-producing countries express their frustration. Well, they put the kibosh on oil experts and brought the West and many other oil-dependent countries to its knees. Let's be clear. The 70s sucked for gas prices. Ask your mother, ask your father. They'll tell you exactly where they were while they were waiting in line to get some oil. But related to this show, the 70s marked the beginning of a rocky relationship between America and Iran. You may have heard about the recent sanctions against Iran and the current administration's position to remove the United States from the historic Iran nuclear deal. I don't know about you, but I had some questions. I wanted to know why we were focused on Iran, first of all. Why did we care about their nuclear capacity compared to, say, other Middle Eastern countries? And besides oil, what are the other reasons we should be caring about Iran? And for crying out loud, what is enriched uranium and why is it such a big deal? And besides the fact that no one wants to be taken out by a nuclear bomb, I wanted to know what are the other interests that America has in Iran and why should anybody here in America actually care about them? Today's show answers these questions by looking at nuclear science. No, we're not going through the periodic table. We're also going to talk about some historical milestones, such as the Iranian Revolution, that might help explain why this relationship between the United States and Iran is so rocky. And finally, we're going to talk about this Iran nuclear deal 
and what it could mean for you if the United States exits. So stay tuned for more and enjoy the show. You are listening to What in the World here, Arlington Independent Media. We are streaming online at WERA.FM, and you can listen on your radio at 96.7 FM if you're in the Arlington, D.C., Virginia area. Uh, joining me today is Farrell Charles. Uh, he is a Russian-speaking, budding energy professional with a focus on geopolitics and energy and security issues in Eurasia. And if you listen to our last show, you might recall we had Alex Johnson uh, on the show to talk about Eurasia and Russian sanctions. So we have another expert here, Farrell Charles, who um, actually lived in both Russia and Kazakhstan. And you actually speak Russian, which I think you might be the uh, maybe one of only uh, a handful of 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 folks uh, that I know that are of color who speak uh, Russian. So that'll be great to hear how you learn that language. Farrell is interested in improving American foreign policy in Eurasia and also contributing to the advancement of America's relationship with Russia. So he's going to talk to us today about Iran, though. Uh, I won't hold him against him. Uh, Farrell went to NYU Center uh, for Global Affairs, uh, where he focused on energy and the environment. And today he actually works as an operations analyst with the uh, New York-based East Coast Power and Gas Company. They basically sell energy. Farrell, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, It's a pleasure uh, to be on your show. I know that you were talking about this a few months ago, so it's nice to see that you got it off the ground. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you I'm glad you can make it. You sound great. And um, I'm, I'm thankful for you for taking time out of your of your busy day to, to talk with us about Iran and this nuclear deal. So, Farrell, you, how did you get into foreign policy? Um, were you in your childhood or interested in this issue or do you have family members that are in this space? How did you come to this this world? Well, you know, um, I always wanted to be a pilot. Uh, my, my, my parents are Air Force veterans. Um, they served overseas. They were in Turkey, um, Spain, and, 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 and uh, in, in Italy. And, um, you know, they inspired me to be a pilot. You know, my dad was a mechanic. Um, my, my, my mother worked in, in, in supply. And, 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 and I wanted to be, uh, you know, a person that flew those planes that my dad fixed the engines for or, you know, or that my mom ordered supplies for. Um, but the one thing that held me back was that, um, you know, I wear glasses. And, and up until recently, the Air Force had a policy where you couldn't fly if you, if you wore glasses. So, you know, I, I started to learn about different military aircraft. And, and, and uh, obviously the, the American planes were the coolest to me. You know, the F-22, um, the Joint Strike Fighter, which is the F-35. Uh, these were like very, very advanced aircraft. They're stealth aircraft. You can't pick them up on radar. Um, but I also took an interest in Russian aviation, and I, 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 I uh, started learning about these planes, and that led to learning about Russia, the Soviet Union, um, and then that led to learning about the Cold War. Um, and then that's kind of where my interest in, in the Soviet Union and, and the world kind of kind of blossomed. Um, so, so I really owe it to my to my parents for for inspiring me to to pursue a career in aviation because, you know, although it didn't work out, um, you know, it's working out for me now because, you know, I've learned about the foreign policy issues and I've learned about, you know, the energy and security relationship between the U.S. and Russia. And that's something that I that I want to uh, have the expertise to work on 
Have you been to Iran at all? So I haven't been to Iran. I really want to go. Iran, um, contrary to you know what many Americans might believe, is a very friendly country towards Americans. Um, I started learning about Iran just because of uh, the the geopolitical similarities uh, between Iran and the Central Asian region. One of the things I, I think is really cool about you is that you are an awesome photographer, Pharaoh. I, so how did you get into photography? Thank you. You know, um, I don't know. You know, one day my my parents bought me a camera and and, and I just started taking pictures and um you know, I want to say last year I took an interest in film photography. A friend of mine bought me a, 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 a old Russian film camera, and I started shooting film. And just you know, my interest blossomed in photography when I started shooting film because it's it's, it's an older format, and and the pictures just look really cool. But it's really hard to kind of marry my interest in photography to my interest in the world. I mean, I guess the closest to that was when I was living in Russia last summer. So I was living in Russia last summer for the for the for the critical language scholarship. It's it's basically an educational scholarship where the State Department and, and uh, American Councils for International Education send students overseas to learn critical languages. So critical languages are are languages of, uh, spoken in countries that America is trying to um, understand better or improve our foreign policy better towards those countries. So. When I was in Russia, I actually took a picture of the Kremlin, and this is by far one of the best pictures I've ever taken. And uh, I went on on Vladimir Putin's um, it's, uh, Twitter account, and he has a very, very blurry photo of the Kremlin on his Twitter account. If you pull it up on the computer, it won't look so good on, on the phone, but if you pull it up on a computer, Vladimir Putin's official Twitter account, he has a, a like an incredibly blurry photo of the Kremlin. So I actually sent the Kremlin a, a, an email like, hey, um, you guys have a really blurry photo. Um, you know, you can you can use my photo if you want. Just make sure you do photo credits. So I was just uh, tro- I was just trolling <laughs> them a little tell bit. The, you did not you did not tell the Kremlin to be like, yo, I want you did not tell them. <laughs> I was just trolling them a little bit. It was it was it was uh, getting them back for meddling in our elections. So. <laughs> Uh, okay. <laughs> if you go missing, no, I'm kidding. Let me stop. Let me stop. Let me stop. Let me stop. I had a few uh, Russian ministries follow me on Instagram, but you know. Oh well. Uh, um, if if anybody is listening from Russia, I I have no. You guys should post anything. that picture on Putin's Twitter. <laughs> okay. It's much better than the picture he has right now. Fair enough. I'm not going to be telling Kremlin, the Kremlin or Russia what to do. You, I'll leave that up to you. You've got a little bit more uh, weight than I do. Uh, but I think this is <laughs> this is a great way to sort of segue into the meat of this show, which okay. is understanding understanding the Iran nuclear deal and what in the world is going on with these sanctions and what our what our what America's position is with with the country. So before we get into the the deal though, I thought that we would spend just a few minutes talking about nuclear science and technology for people who who don't normally, you know, venture into this space. Um and and I found an interesting um uh piece of information that really solidified for me or not solidified but at least put some some pillars around, you know, what nuclear science and what nuclear energy is all about. And I read President Eisenhower's um, speech that he gave at the UN General Assembly, where he he calls it the the sort of his speech was titled the the atoms for peace, um, and he essentially you know lays out that America has you know stockpiles of of nuclear 
nuclear weapons and we, we use them and we don't want to use them. And now we're not at that time. He, he basically says, you know, look, the Soviet Union has nuclear weapons as well. And it would be horrible if these two countries, the United States and the Soviet Union, got into this 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 beef, this horrible war. It wouldn't be good for humanity and, and it wouldn't be good for the world. And so in this speech, Eisenhower basically commits to setting up some institutions that would set some rules and standards around the use of of nuclear energy. And Farrell, you know, I'm sure you've in your studies and in your experience, maybe talking to other people have heard of what that time was like um, during the age of of nuclear nuclear war and, and fear. So just talk about the the mood of the world during that time um, from a historical perspective. Well, you know, I was I was born in 1990, so um, you know, <laughs> my experience is, is is absolutely limited. But but what I would say is, you know, based on my my research and my studies, I would say that the world was very on edge. You know, the U.S. used nuclear weapons in Japan, um, and that brought a, a a quick ending to World War II. I mean, the mm-hmm. use of the nuclear weapons um, ended the war quickly, and it kind of asserted the U.S.'s hegemony in the world at that point and then russia challenged mm-hmm. that throughout the cold war um so given the fact that the u.s used them and russia eventually got them i think the world was well the soviet union at the time the world was 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 concerned um you know are more countries going to get these weapons is the u.s going to use them again is russia going to use them once mm-hmm. or for the first time and so you know there was a general mood to kind of limit countries getting these weapons um, in the event that um, if we limit the amount of countries that have these weapons, then the likelihood of them being used is is is, is minimal. Um, and so uh, the Adams for Peace program was um, instituted to basically allow countries to get nuclear energy, right? So nuclear weapons and nuclear energy are, 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 are very similar, but they're very different. So I, I can just explain to you how nuclear energy works, okay, or how energy works in general. To produce electricity, you need to have heat produced. So essentially what happens in a nuclear reactor, right, is there is an, a, a nuclear reaction going on in there. So an atom is being split, and that's producing immense amounts of heat. That heat is used to boil water. When the water gets boiled, that water go, feeds into a turbine. That turbine spins. That turbine produces electricity, and then that's how we get energy to, to power our iPhones or our laptops or, you know, we're watching Netflix. Um, so we need, we need that energy. So America gets energy from many different sources. Nuclear energy is just one of them, and it's one of the most efficient. Um, what I mean by efficiency is you don't need that much fuel to produce a lot of energy, whereas coal, coal is not efficient. So you need a large amount of coal to produce the same amount of nuclear energy um, that maybe one pellet. So, so nuclear, when we produce nuclear energy, right, these are like little pellets. Um, and so one pellet probably, probably, probably produces as much energy as like a truckload of, of, of coal. So it's more efficient. Um, so that's the science behind producing nuclear, nuclear energy. So basically a nuclear weapon or a warhead is the same thing, right? You have to split an atom to produce an enormous amounts of heat. So that heat is an explosion. So when we detonated the bombs over Nagasaki and Hiroshima, that was basically an atom being split, enormous amounts of heat produced, and it just destroyed those those, those cities. Um, the difference is 
the, 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 the yield, the capacity, how much heat is being produced. So obviously in a reactor where you're producing nuclear energy, you're producing a lot less heat than you are in a bomb. So what is this? this is, these are fossil uranium and plutonium. This, this is how weapons are made and also energy. Um, these are fossil fuels. They come from the ground. They need to be processed. Oil it comes from the ground needs to be processed. It, it gets processed into gas and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, so uranium and plutonium, that's the first product when you get it out of the ground. You have to process it, and that process is called enrichment. So in order to, in order to um, produce energy, you need to enrich uranium a little bit, right? To produce a nuclear bomb, you need to enrich uranium a lot. Less than how, how you know a country is producing weapons is how much uranium they're, they're enriching. If they're enriching a lot, they're not using that uranium for, for a nuclear power plant. They're using it for, for a bomb. So, uh, okay, so that goes back to your point about sort of the amount of the efficiency, right? So the amount of energy it takes to, say, to produce our iPhone or, or produce the energy in our iPhone or our Netflix, which I, I think is great, uh, to think about... Uh, that that's a certain level of uranium or or nuclear energy that's necessary. Uh-huh. So when people start, or when we hear countries, um, we hear this all the time about um, this country's enriching uranium. Uh-huh. We're basically, or someone is saying, they're enriching more uranium than is necessary to do basic things like you know power their electricity grid or whatever they're when they hit a certain point we start to get worried like why do they need this much enriched uranium exactly trying to build up a, a, a weapon mm-hmm. use it for a malicious intent exactly okay that's that's great i i i couldn't quite understand the idea of enriching uranium and and how it fit into the science of nuclear energy but you did a great job mm-hmm. thank you i'm um, explaining that there's a governing body, IAEA, which sort of was created at the outset of World War II in response to, you know, the national, the international sort of agreement that we can't bomb each other to death. Yes. <laughs> so, so, so talk about how the International Atomic Energy Agency, known as IAEA, operates to help countries like or at, le- at least help, but also guide countries in using nuclear energy um, for beneficial use rather than for harm. So like you said, uh, that's correct. The, the IEA was, was established to basically make sure um, that, there, that countries that are interested in, 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 in nuclear, um, nuclear in general, um, that, that, they're, that they're pursuing it for people, peaceful purposes and not to acquire nuclear weapons. So the IE does a lot of cool things in helping countries cooperate in terms of using that nuclear, nuclear technology. For example, the U.S. and Russia cooperate on, on nuclear energy, uh, nuclear reactor design. So the Russian energy company, um, Rosatom, or basically Russian, Rush, Rush Atom, um, cooperates with the Department of Energy um, to help um, basically try to make reactor designs uh, similar or the same so that they can be built you know, more quicker um, and and more uh, efficiently um, and cheaper. The IAEA basically helps facilitate, you know, cooperation in terms of, of, of the scientific and technical aspects of, of, of peaceful nuclear energy generation. So, what this is the cool thing about nuclear energy is that nuclear energy can help a developing country stop producing so much greenhouse gases because you know many developing countries are producing electricity from coal and coal is so dirty. I mean countries like South Africa, countries like India 
I'm talking about developing countries that have large economies. Um, Russia, I mean, China, these countries produce a lot of their electricity from coal. And coal is so dirty. So if you can get nuclear online in China, and China is going to be the largest investor in nuclear energy for probably the next 50 years. Um, China wants to become a nuclear energy superpower. So they're basically going to, you know, I, I hope that they can they can do this because I care about <laughs> You know, people in China that 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 are exposed to, to to so much pollution, if they can build these power plants and get their coal plants shut down, then their air will be much cleaner. Same thing in South Africa. Same thing in in in, in India. Um, and so I think it's really cool that this very advanced technology is being implemented in, in developing countries, and I and I hope to see uh, you know more progress on this going forward. This is sort of a great way to talk about um, the origins of our relationship with Iran. I think um, Iran is one of these countries that, you know, is a critical partner to the United States and similar to China and to Russia and uh, South Africa, you know, they, you know, we hear a lot about them, but I don't think we, we know really, you know, what the, what our relationship has been like with them and sort of how we've gotten to this point where, you know, just a few months ago, we, it's not the first set of sanctions, but, you know, we reissued more sanctions yes. on Iran. And, you know, uh, the current administration is thinking about pulling out of the nu- nuclear deal. So from my understanding, you know, we had friendly ties uh, back in the 60s and 70s with with Iran. Um, they experienced a lot of economic growth. Um, the United States was like we clearly had an embassy there. We were very involved with their economy, with with their cultural institutions, and so on and so forth, and then nineteen sixty sorry nineteen seventy three hit, and I'm sure many people who are the older generation remember the oil crisis and the oil embargo, where basically oil producing countries are like, look, we're not producing any more oil for you guys. They were upset about some things uh, having to do with Israel. We won't go into all of those details, but they essentially had the power to reduce the oil supply. Um, and, and then we had, you know, subsequent events after that. So, uh, Farrell, just walk us through some critical milestones um, with regard to our relationship with Iran starting in the 70s and just high level, how did we get to where we are with them? So, so the U.S.-Iranian relationship um, like relationships the U.S. has with you know these oil-producing countries in the Middle East is is is, is very very much exclusively tied to energy, particularly oil and natural gas. Iran's one of the biggest natural gas producers in the world. The U.S. is too. Recently, the U.S. became a big natural gas and oil superpower. Um, but our, our relationship with them started based on you know their energy sector, as such Saudi Arabia, but um, you know, the U.S. helped uh, these countries in the Middle East establish their, their energy sector because they didn't have the technology. We had the technology because we were already producing oil in Texas. We were already producing oil in California. We were already producing oil um, in Pennsylvania. We were one of the largest oil producers in the world. So we had the technology to get it out of the ground. They didn't. So we assisted them in that, and that's where our relationship started, particularly with Saudi Arabia. You know, the, 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 the main oil company in Saudi Arabia, Saudi Aramco, started as the Saudi, as the American Arab oil company. I mean, that's what Aramco means. Um, BP started in Iran as uh, the B- British, BP, the oil company, BP, the oil company started in Iran. And, and so this that. is kind of how, 
um, relations between the West and, and Iran started in, in modern times. Obviously, Iran's been around for a long time. It's been a very important country. I mean, the movie 300 was based on uh, the Persian <laughs> army fighting the Greeks. I mean, Iran has been a, been, a, been a regional hegemon for a long time off and on. Um, so that, you know, I think its, it's importance will, will, will continue to, to be as such um, for, for many years to come. Um, but that's that's how modern relations between the West and Iran started. Um, these were colonial subjects, and um, we basically, you know, controlled their their energy sectors. So the U.S. started to get involved with Iran when a national a nationalist um, leader came to power. His name was Mossadegh, um, and he nationalized Iran's oil sector. So he basically kicked BP out and said, "Hey, this is our oil. We're going to produce it. We're going to sell it. And we're going to take the profits for ourselves." and the British and the West was like, no, you're not. And, um, you know, a coup happened in Iran, and that's where the Shah was put back. The Shah was mm-hmm. put into power, and the Shah mm-hmm. was kind of, you know, a close friend of the U.S., and mm-hmm. Iranian oil was, was brought back under the control of, 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 of the West. So I would say those are the right. origins of the modern, you know, relationship between the West and Iran. The reason why I say the West is because the British at that time were in control of of Iranian of of, of Iran's oil sector. Yeah, and and I think uh, it's important to you mentioned you know the Shah and and some people may not be as uh, familiar mm-hmm. here with this, um, but the Shah, as you mentioned, was friendly to the West and to the United States and Britain, as you mentioned. The people though didn't feel that way. The people of Iran did not necessarily agree with their leader yes um being so close to to the united states and actually the iranian revolution um 1978 to 1970 or 70 77 to 79 or the different dates that i've seen but anyways this iranian revolution was essentially the iranian people trying to reassert control over their country yes and and sort of topple the Shah, um, I believe his name was Pav- Pavli. So he, he was toppled, and um, Iran, Iran on April 1st became its sort of own country, the Iranian Republic, yes. and, and that sort of is the birth of, of this country um, in the modern-day sense. How, how do the Iranians see the United States today? You mentioned in your intro just that they're great, they're friendly people, but... Are they still sort of similar? I, I mean, they called it the, the leader, Iranian leader back in, in the 70s, called us the great Satan, <laughs> which I found really interesting. I challenge viewers to go uh, read Iranian sources and see what they're saying about the U.S. because it's not always negative stuff. I mean, I wouldn't even say it's most of the time. I'd say it's a quarter of the time that Iran is espousing this rhetoric. You know, it might be anti-U.S., anti-Israel, which you also have to have to think about it. Um, this is, Iran is a is a, is a former is a, is a was a co- formerly colonized country, and they're just trying to, you know, control their own country. They're not trying to have right. some outside power control them. So, right, looking at any type of power that that tried to control them before, like the U.S., they're obviously going to look at that country with great suspicion, with great doubt. Obviously, the U.S. has the biggest navy in the world. We have the biggest air force in the world. So we basically control the seas. We control the skies. So, where our ships are always in the Persian Gulf. And that's always, you know, paranoid a country like like Iran. So, you know, Iran initially, um, when when the revolution happened, Iran was was not going to continue with their nuclear program, the nuclear energy program. Then, you know, when Saddam Hussein attacked Iran, and this is where the Iran Iraq War started, 
um, and I believe it was 1979, um, Iran decided that they were going to go ahead and, 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 and continue this, this nuclear program. And I think the factor that came to mind is if we get nuclear weapons, and, that, and this, this goes with most countries that have the weapons and most countries that want them, countries want nuclear weapons for security. There's a, there's a, a correlation between countries that have nu- nuclear weapons being less acceptable to being attacked by other countries that have nuclear weapons, just being attacked in general. Um, mm-hmm. So a nuclear weapon, it doesn't guarantee your security, but it elevates the chances of, uh, it, it, it decreases the chances, uh, chances of you being attacked by an outside power. Mm-hmm. The Iran-Iraq war was an incredibly, um, it was just an awful war. Saddam Hussein used chemical weapons against Iran. Um, you know, I know people that were, were, were personally have family members that were affected um, people who have family members that died in that war, um, you know, because of the ke- because of the chemicals that were used, and so it was a, just a deadly war, and it was a stalemate. No one, won, no one won the war, and mm-hmm. so you know, Iran said, you know, you know, we're going to continue with this nuclear weapons program and see with this nuclear energy program and see if we can and see if we can get a nuclear weapon out of it. That way, we can we can dissuade these other countries in the region from attacking us because the Middle East is just right. an incredibly volatile region. Right. And and, um, there's a few nuggets of information I want to pull out of here to thread this story together. And for the sake of time, I'll do it very quickly so we can jump into the Iran deal. But Mm -hmm. what I what I hear you saying is, um, you know, it's kind of like if you're, you know, the kid on the the little the, the, the underdog on the playground and, you know, maybe you feel like you're being bullied by the older kids. Right. You're going to do what you can do to protect yourself. Yes. And if you have to, I don't know you know, talk to the principal, if you've got to, you know, carry some stones with you when you're going to lunch, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, mm-hmm. right? You're going to do whatever it takes to protect yourself. And and so I, I appreciate the perspective that you're bringing, because what you're saying is essentially, hey, look, put yourself in Iran shoes. You have Iraq that's been hostile towards you. You have a country, um, you've mentioned Israel, who has nuclear weapons. They're afraid of Iran, but, you know, Iran's also looking at Israel like you guys have nukes as well. Um, There are other countries, the United States, that back Israel who has nukes. And so if you're the little guy, not the little guy, but if you're the the sort of country like Iran who's who's trying to just maintain some sense of sovereignty, you're going to do what you want to you're going to try to do what you need to do to remain um, safe and to protect your your people. So I. I actually appreciate you giving us that perspective. I don't think we hear a lot about that when we talk about or when we hear about Iran in the in the news. We always hear that, oh, they've got nukes and they're going to blow up Israel. They're going to blow up, you know, this place or they're going to, yeah. you know, set the world on fire. Um, but this places them into context and actually in that region. Yes, you're right. Now, I would say Israeli politicians, especially the people working in foreign policy, they know that Iran is, is not going to attack them. I mean, um, if they if they get a nuclear weapon, the former Israeli uh, foreign minister, his name is Dan Meridor. Um, if you guys can can look him up, he even said that that he views Iran as a very rational power in the region, and he doesn't think that if Iran acquires nuclear, nuclear weapons, they will attack um, Israel. Um, and so, and and to get back to you, you mentioned in the U.S. support of Israel, the U.S. does support Israel enormously um, because they're an ally in the Middle East. But the U.S. also supports Many countries in the Middle East we support Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. we support Jordan, we support Egypt. I don't think the U.S. relationship in the, Israel, in, in the Middle East is just supporting a few countries. I think it's a balancing act. So we support mm-hmm. 
you know, various countries at various times at various levels. This behemoth of a, of a situation regarding the Iran nuclear deal and the sanctions, the sanctions that were, um, you know, placed on the country, the new set of sanctions that were placed on the country just recently. So um, many folks may have heard um, that, um, you know, the United States is thinking about pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal. And I don't even know if people understand what the nuclear, what was actually inside the nuclear deal. The American ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, spoke uh, at the American Enterprise Institute about the administration's concern with um, the Iranian nuclear deal. And uh, it's basically the president, President Trump, has come out and said it's the worst deal ever. Um, Iran's not complying. And there's really um, two camps here. There's the camp of folks who who sort of agree with Ambassador Haley that America needs to take a more strong, stringent approach um, with Iran to prevent it from taking or from developing nuclear weapons and that, you know, the Iranian deal was a hot mess and, and doesn't isn't working. And then there's another camp, um, which when I was doing my research is filled with people from both the left, the right, academics, um, international leaders, uh, you know, government people who have basically say, hey, look, this is the best that we're going to get. They're in compliance. And we ought to move forward um, and let Iran continue to implement the agreement according to what was set out um, in the Iran deal created, you know, a, a couple of years ago under the Obama administration. So summarize what is in the Iran deal. Okay, so before we jump into the Iran deal, I just want to briefly go over over, over the sanctions and why this deal happened. So, um, you know, after Iran, after Iran became the Islamic Republic of Iran, the Shah was 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 deposed. Um, the U.S. started putting sanctions on Iran because they continued their nuclear program, and they weren't correctly reporting exactly what they were doing to the international. Energy, uh, International uh, Atomic Energy Agency. So if you're doing anything with regards to nuclear energy, you have to report this information to the IEA because it's like an international governing body. So Iran mm-hmm. wasn't reporting some things. Some things they were reporting false. Basically, Iran was doing a lot of cheating. You know, they said that they wanted to produce nuclear energy, um, but they were cheating. And, you know, all their actions indicate that they're trying to produce nuclear weapons. And even though there were some reports by the CIA and Mossad and, and uh, the Israeli intelligence agency that said that there was no concrete proof that they were developing nuclear weapons, um, their actions indicate that they are. And that's why the sanctions happened, because the U.S. didn't want Iran to get nuclear weapons. So the first sanctions started on the Clinton administration, and basically they were just sanctioning different sectors of the Iranian economy, as well as other countries that had economic relations with Iran, to basically to hit them in their bank accounts to make sure that mm-hmm. they stopped doing it. And Iran didn't stop doing it. Russia was helping them. Germany started helping them in their nuclear energy sector. And then once the revolution happened, Germany stopped. They, they were actually building a power plant, and they just stopped building it. So later on, the Russians came and finished that plant, and, and the Russians have been helping them a little bit. But for the most part, Iran has been developing this program, you know, by themselves. And and and. And so the sanctions came when Iran was basically cheating uh, the international community and not really telling them what they were really doing. But when Obama came into office, his sanctions were just wide-reaching. And not only did he punish um, Iran 
um, with these sanctions, but he really went after these countries that were still doing business with Iran because, you know, these, con- these, these companies in these countries wanted to make money, and they thought, they thought that they could, cheat, they could cheat these sanctions. Well, the Obama administration taught them that they could not do that. And this is when the sanctions really started to bite the Iranian economy. And, and, and that's where the JCPOA, which is the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, slash the, the Iran nuclear deal, came out. So basically, this deal was to get Iran to stop going towards um, a nuclear weapon, stop their activities that indicate that they might be developing a nuclear weapon, which means that they were, they were, they were enriching a lot of uranium um, at a level that you don't need to enrich uranium for to produce nuclear energy. So the deal basically says that Iran cannot enrich uranium like that anymore. And if Iran stops doing that and all of the all of that enriched uranium that they have enriched to that level, you know, gets basically taken out of the country, then uh, the sanctions will be relieved. So that's what's going on right now. And and the deal so far is working. Um, now, when I say working, I mean to say that Iran is not enriching um, uranium uh, to the level that it was before, uh, which is weapons grade. Uh, now I don't want to comment on the president because you know I I I, I like to keep yeah, I like sure. to keep things very very neutral. You know I don't For want to sure. show my cards. I don't even know no, if I have no, any no. cards with, with this one. <laughs> um, but no, but I I I wanted to raise another piece of this nuclear deal, which is sort of what Ambassador Haley um his call to attention, which is having to do with the monitoring of Iran and making sure that they are not you know, enriching uranium and plutonium as called out in the in the nuclear deal. So mm-hmm. Haley is basically saying, you know, we need more inspectors to go into Iran and basically look at her, Iran comprehensively, yes. like be, basically get all up in their business to really ensure that they are not enriching uranium. And others are saying that, Right now, the inspectors are from IAEA, but others are saying, look, these inspectors are in there as a part of the deal. They're inspecting the most important pieces of 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 Iran's nuclear program. I think what we should be pursuing is something in the middle, something in the middle of the people on the left side of the spectrum are saying, which is the deal's working. You know, let the deal happen. Let it work. Let it mature. And also what the people on the right are saying, which is, we need to go in there and find out exactly what they're doing, and if so, cancel this deal. Um, I think that the answer is somewhere in the middle. We need to not cancel the deal, but we also shouldn't trust Iran. And you know, I'm a, I'm an idealist. I mean, I, I want countries that are adversaries to work together in the world. I want I want the U.S. to work with Iran to help stabilize the Middle East. I want the U.S. to work with with Russia to help, you know, stabilize uh, various global energy policies, various global security policies. But you can't trust countries, you know. And so we can't trust Iran because they have a history of lying and cheating. Uh, the answer is in the middle. We should, we, should, we should keep the deal, but we need to verify it. And it needs to be more than what the IEA is doing. Talk to us about the monitoring. How does that work exactly? How do these inspectors actually inspect? What are they inspecting? And how do we know that, you know, can we actually know that Iran isn't, you know, building, uh, you know, enriching uranium? Essentially, what they're going in is checking in. They're going in and checking to see, you know, is there any evidence that that hints that Iran is enriching 
more uranium uh, or is enriching uranium up to a certain level. Is there any evidence that they're taking these materials somewhere else? Because that can indicate that there's another facility that, that hasn't been already disclosed. Um, you know, is there any evidence that they're that they're producing uh, what's called hard water, hard or heavy water. Heavy water is used to to help enrich uranium uh, to weapons grade. You know, how much heavy water do they have, and what are they using this heavy water for? So let's summarize here this 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 what's in it, so people actually understand when they hear it what is in it. There are sort of three main parts. Stop them from enriching uranium that will allow them to build a nuclear bomb. Stop them from um, you know, producing plutonium that also can produce a nuclear bomb and to agree to be monitored um, to make sure that they're doing the latter, the latter two pieces. And, and the monitoring is done by the IAEA uh, and, you know, and this, these, these sort of monitoring measures um, are supposed to make sure that not only is Iran safe, but the region is safe and therefore the world is safe. And you you touched on something, and I think this is a great way for you to bring it home to people. You know, what what are the implications or what 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 does it do to America should the United States remove itself from the Iran deal? What I'd say what I'd definitely say is, you know, and Obama said this too, if if we don't implement this deal, if this deal um, you know, doesn't continue it's very likely that you're going to have a war in the Middle East because um, Iran's going to try to get a weapon. And I'm not sure how the regional powers in the region will uh, will react to that. I'm not sure how Israel is going to react to that. I mean, what happened when Syria, Syria tried to get a nuclear, tried to uh, have a nuclear capacity. Israel bombed their reactor. Um, Iraq tried to get a nuclear capacity. Israel bombed their reactor. So I'm not sure both Syria and Iraq didn't respond to Israel bombing the reactors, but how might Iran respond to that? You know, are they going to start a, a, a war with Israel? You know, how will the United States get involved with that? Because the United States is a huge supporter of Israel. Will the United States have to support Israel in a war against Iran? What other countries are going to be drawn into that war? Will Russia be drawn into that war because Russia is a... Russia is not a friend of of Iran, but it's a it's a, it's an ally out of convenience right now. Um, so will Russia be drawn into that war? Will Saudi Arabia be drawn into that war? I think it's very likely that if they continue towards, you know, a bomb, you're going to have a conflict uh, in the Middle East. Uh, many argue that if Iran does get a bomb, it'll contribute to more security and more peace because, you know, the presence of nuclear weapons dissuades conflict, but. I'm not really sure about that. I mean, Iran has, uh, Pakistan has nukes, India has nukes, China has nukes, and all three of those countries have border disputes with each other. And there's a lot of um, border skirmishes going on um, between those countries right now. So I'm not sure if, if it's just as simple as let Iran get nuclear weapons and everything will be fine. I don't think, I don't think it's that simple at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I read something similar about, you know, the idea that if, if, uh, it was actually from the American Enterprise Institute that basically said, you know, America should prepare for military action, right? If, in fact, we remove ourselves from the the deal, um, which mm-hmm. which which took me back to the interview I did with Asha Castleberry, who was an Iraqi war veteran, and she talked about the the humane aspect of of 
the the relationship uh, between the United States and the Middle East and how, you know, we're we're sending our young men and women here. Right. Yes, they signed up. Yes, they signed up to, to be in the military. We thank them for their service. But at the end of the day, these are lives. These are our neighbors, our co-workers, children, you know, our friends, our family members who are potentially having to go over to these countries and 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 settle um settle disputes and so I think it matters to bring it home I think it matters because you know when when we're talking about war we're not just talking about stopping a country you know we're talking about also sending our men and women overseas um to to fight and and certainly that impacts their families here in America um and and as you alluded to earlier you know just in history we've seen you know it could impact oil prices right um Mm -hmm. when we when we're caught up in these conflicts with other countries. So in tradition, this is, a, this is a lot of information and we didn't get a chance to go through everything, but um, it's, it's enough for me to worry a little bit more about the state of our world when it comes to, to nuclear warfare. And it's, it's scary. <laughs> so, so I try to end the show on a positive note. I ask each, each one of our guests to share a song that keeps them in a good mood and positive in the midst of all of this sort of scary information, like the potential uh, for nuclear war. And Farrell, what was the song that you that keeps you sort of in a good good mood? Yeah, so I picked Doing It Again by uh, The Roots. Um, I actually started listening to The Roots recently because I was watching a Hannibal, Hannibal Burris stand up and, uh, you know, he opened with one of their songs. Um, and yeah, I really love this song because it's just about hard work, dedication, and getting results. And you know, that's what my life has been about recently. You know, I've been you know working very hard throughout grad school to to acquire wisdom about the world that would help me uh, first and foremost get employed, and secondly, contribute to some greater change. Like I said, I'm I'm a little bit of an idealist, and I want to see if I can contribute to something positive to the world. Um, and and so you know, just working so hard to get to school and get a job has been very tough so i'm very fortunate to to to, to have been able to to start work recently and, and i just i listen to the song it really inspires me and it and it and it, and it keeps me working hard and, and, and during those tough times when i'm getting those job rejections or i'm getting those fellowship rejections or i have you know papers to write i don't have some time to write them so awesome i i love your song selection um you have great taste uh, the roots is also one of my favorite bands and uh, I want to thank you again Pharaoh for taking the time out to speak with us and really start to demystify a little bit of this issue on nuclear weapons and nuclear energy uh, ladies and gentlemen uh, you can per usual go to WERA.FM to listen to the show online you can catch our other episodes on mixcloud.com slash what in the world we are also on Facebook at facebook.com slash what in the world podcast we're also on twitter at w-i-t-w pod so there's multiple ways you can stay engaged on these issues hear what people have to say um and really figure out for yourself how this um, information how these topics matter to your everyday lives so thank you again pharaoh and um we'll talk to you soon thank you i appreciate it and i, I look forward to talking with you in the future